0: Welcome to episode 52 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre, featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, stage managers, producers, and more. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. Diana Cho is a playwright and actor from Toronto. She was really quite gracious with her time because we had some technical issues during our first attempt at recording a podcast, and we lost the, all of the audio, and so she was kind enough to jump right back in and give it another go. Really generous with her time, and I'm very thankful to her for that. Her show Comfort opens November 24th, 2016 at the Aki Studio Theatre and runs to December 10th. Um, in terms of of, of things that uh, actually, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you in what I will now refer to as the Lost Podcast mm-hmm. is um, you. We were talking a little bit about your story about how you came to theater. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that it started with dance, and uh, eventually, I. what well, uh, could you could you talk about? about
1: um, well, I've always loved to dance, even mm-hmm. as a kid. I. My mom caught me on a camera where I was sleepwalking. I literally crawled out of my crib and I was just dancing. And then I just crawled back into my crib and then went back to sleep. How old
0: were you when that happened?
1: Yeah, I think it's like two or three. Okay. Yeah. So even then, uh, I just loved to move. Mm -hmm. And the story that I told was about my mom having a Christmas party at her work, and there was a prize to be given to anybody who could dance the longest. And even Mm -hmm. though the music was still going and the winner was announced, which was me, I just kept spinning and spinning and kept dancing and dancing. I really didn't care about winning any prizes. I just wanted to keep on dancing. So I I think I've always loved to move, Mm -hmm. but I never, you know became a dancer because it, it, a lot of, I guess, Asian families I can make, maybe speak for myself is that they don't think of arts as a career, mm. uh, something that you're going to make a living out of, so it, that never crossed my path. I also had scoliosis so mm. I didn't fit that perfect uh, body form, height width of being a dancer so I just thought, I'll just do it for, for fun but uh, I had an amazing teacher Catherine Hep Hepner think, and she uh, just was so amazing, and I always remember her words, that we were all dancing, I was learning all these different movements, and we all, you know, the music played, and there we went, and then she pointed out to the class, she said, it doesn't matter how much technique you have, but if you don't have the passion, Mm -hmm. then it's, you know, you're missing you're mm. missing the magic so Diana may not be doing all the right techniques <laughs> and all the right moves but there she is whether she's doing it wrong or right she's just doing it passionately and that's um, that's the important thing so I knew then it just enforced to, to be yourself to follow your heart to follow your passion mm-hmm. and maybe you could be doing all the wrong moves in somebody's eyes but they're the right moves for you
0: when when you were I mean you were you just mentioned about how in your family the arts were not something that, that it was thought of as something that was a career. Not um, what, thought of as a career. What did you intend did, did, did to do before, uh, the, when you were thinking about university and things like that, what is it that you wanted to do or you were going to do?
1: I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I enrolled in the English literature at U of T because I loved reading, that's mm-hmm. all I knew that about university so I just read lots of books and then my dad says well what are you going to do with a literature degree and I said I have no idea so he goes well enroll in either teachers college or law school so I started writing the LSAT Mm. and then I was sitting there in the big hall and the time was ticking and then I just started coloring all different circles no matter what the question was (laughs) just had the epiphany that I don't want to be a lawyer. I have no idea what I want to be, but I definitely don't want to be a lawyer. That's all I know. I ran out of there, called my mom. I was crying. She said, just come home. You don't have to be a lawyer if you don't want to. Let's just talk about it. She's a social worker, mm. so it's all about talk.
0: That's a very important. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how many people I know or have heard of who they sort of had that same sort of thing. You can be this. You can be a lawyer. And well, I'll be a lawyer. And they went so far into it became lawyers and hate it. Mm. So at least you found out before you got into the school or became a lawyer that it was not for you. Yeah. Was... But then what did you decide to do? Uh,
1: while I was at university, friends of mine were all taking accounting and business and all that and uh, they wanted to form a theater company that promoted heritage to uh, encourage youth to be proud of their culture mm-hmm. be proud of their history. So uh, it was called Kabata'an and... They had a playwright, they had a play, they had a director, then everything fell through. And they said, Diana, why don't you write the play? Why don't you direct it? Because you're the closest to the arts in the entire company. And I said, but I don't write plays. I don't direct plays. I read books and I have a thesis. Yeah. So I talked to some friends that were in the drama department on how to go about, you know, mounting a, a production. So the business side took care of all the mm-hmm. business, got people in the room to audition, book the spaces, book the places, and uh, and we basically wrote the script as a collective, and then I directed mm-hmm. it for the first time. And, and I wanted to find out, wow, this is pretty cool, this is pretty fun. Um, and somebody uh, asked me, so somehow, oh, I wanted to be a better director to mm-hmm. communicate with uh, the actors, so I decided to audition for a play, but I couldn't get it, and I became the assistant director, mm-hmm. which was really fun for um, uh, a show called the Farm Show that was a, a very multicultural piece um, uh, by Paul Thompson. Right. And that was at the the Tarragon Spring Festival, right. And I worked with Colin Taylor, and it was really really great. And then he recommended me to direct a Fringe play that was all in verse, and then the the writer producer said, so um, you know, this is a fringe play so we can't uh, you know, we have a limited budget What, what is your expected fee? And I was, <laughs> fee? There's fees
0: in the
1: There's fees, I gotta tell my parents there's fees, you can get, you can get money for, for directing <laughs> So then they made an offer, I said, well what, what you know, what's your budget? They made an offer and I said, that sounds fine and so I directed this play, then I still wanted to really dive in further. What is it like to stand in the actor's shoes? So I finally got a piece merging um, that was a play uh, uh, called Worlds Between, and it merged uh, an old mythology uh, called Mm -hmm. Legend of the White Snake with a contemporary uh, story about a writer and a producer and and a mom, Mm -hmm. and I played the girlfriend. So I had a chance to actually practice And learn Chinese opera, and at the same time be in this play. And the moment I stepped off stage, boom! I had an epiphany. I don't want Mm -hmm. to be a director. I want to be an actor, and I got to get serious because I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life.
0: So you you studied Chinese opera. Was that that was was under the director? Under the director. He
1: is a Chinese opera Mm -hmm. performer.
0: What what did you learn about about? Because had you been exposed to Chinese opera before that? Just
1: seeing performances.
0: Okay. And what was your what was the difference between your perception of what that was in watching a performance uh, c- compared to actually, like, doing it?
1: Doing it is so much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is, because yeah. you get to move. I was learning, you know, the different martial arts, because mm. there was stage combat involved. I played this mythological creature, which was Lady uh, Greensnake. And um, yeah. it's just... It's just so fun. Mm -hmm. Like, the the physicality is really fun. I didn't do the singing. There was no singing in it, but the physicality was fun. And learning about uh, this cultural ancient story that's in an opera is hours Mm -hmm. and hours long, but we've condensed it, and uh, it's a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, working with... uh, There was another actor. She's from Hong Kong. And learning from her, who is from that cultural, you know culturally through mm-hmm. her eyes in the theatre in Asia and and learning about the cultural aspects of the play. Right. It was just a really great experience. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And then, um, so you learn that. So I had that um,
1: epiphany of, of course, I want to yeah. be an actor. So I decided to take workshops, but it wasn't enough. So I decided to go to school and I was recommended um, to go to the Lecoq school in France because it was um, actors, directors, dancers, movers, creators from all walks of life who already have a degree behind them and they're coming together because they want to collaborate and they want to create. Had you
0: heard of the Lecoq School before Never. you went there? Never. Never? So it was like you didn't quite know what you were getting into when you, when you went no, there? No, but it was
1: like I've always wanted to live in France, so that was like a plus. Mm-hmm, there's that, And yeah. I spoke some French and just to be... Uh, living in a country outside of Canada, mm. I think would be such a unique and uh, enriching yeah. experience. Yeah,
0: um, so you were you were at the Cock school, how long do you audition to Two get years. into the
1: Cock? No, but basically your first year is an audition.
0: Oh, okay. you probation for three months
1: <laughs> and then you're basically auditioning for the rest of the year, mm. so from, you know, a hundred something they narrowed down the second year to like 30
0: students wow that's that's quite an attrition rate
1: yeah it was crazy it must have
0: been an intense time like to think about but also just to think like to know that like this is this whole year is my audition and at the end of this year i might not continue that's stressful
1: well you couldn't think i might not continue
0: no, You have course, to say, I'm going, going. To mm. I'm going to continue, I'm
1: going to continue, I am I have the right to be in this school. Right. And I was even warned, Canadians are really nice, so be tough. Like, mm. if there's something, that it, when an exercise is presented, whether you understand the instructions perfectly or not, just get up and do it.
0: Mm. What's the biggest lesson that you learned from the Lecoq School?
1: Um, make mistakes and enjoy them.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, one of my professors is just make mistakes and enjoy them, and...
0: Yeah. I think that's one of those things that I think is one of those valuable lessons, those valuable things to hear. It's because I remember being in in theater school afraid to make mistakes. Even though they said, you know, there are no right answers. And then on the other hand, somebody would say, but get it right, you know? So it was always like, you were always worried that maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. But I think more encouragement to, to make mistakes would make it, I don't know. My, I don't want to say a better experience, but a more uh, enriching experience.
1: I think that's the because it's a it's a theater school about creation, right? Mm-hmm. About creating your own work. I think if you you don't allow yourself to take those risks mm-hmm. and to make mistakes, then you're you're going to be in this box where you can never fully explore the potential of you as an artist mm-hmm. and your story as a story out there to be expressed in the maximum most 360
0: degree way you right. can right, right. yeah um, and you were at that school you were at the COP for two, two years ago. and um, when you came when you came back what was what was it that you saw yourself doing when you came back What were you, did you? was there a difference between the path that you wanted to take when you came back and the path that you eventually took
1: well, I felt like I didn't fit in because everybody had to get an, uh, an agent and then wait for somebody to call call mm-hmm. wait for your agent yeah. to call you. You go to the audition and then you get a part or yeah. you don't get a part. And I just thought this is not working for me because all the people that I knew were all from Europe and they were creating companies and creating their own of work. Of
0: course, yeah. So
1: I called uh, Dean Gilmore. He's Smith Gilmore. Mm-hmm. He also uh, him and and Mimi um, uh, Smith. Graduated also uh, from cock, and I said, I graduated from cock, and I feel out of place. Mm. Are you having an, any auditions? <laughs> so they were, and they were working on Dante's Inferno, okay. so I basically went in, and all we did was play. It was just like school all mm. over again. We had excerpts of Dante's Inferno, and you take the text and you just run with it with other, you know, what another actor mm-hmm. in the room. So that was really great. I had, uh, I had a great audition, and I ended up doing the show with them, and it was so fantastic to feeling that you're not fitting into being part of a company that yeah. you know shared the same experience with you but then at the same time I also did work the traditional way of how it is done in Canada where you're workshopping new plays right. or you're in a in a Shakespeare play or you're in a play that's you know the traditional way of auditioning and getting cast mm-hmm. in a role so I still do both yeah. I still create my own work but then I'm also in plays that are either new or and workshopping
0: right.
1: or uh Classical and remounting. Yeah.
0: yeah. When um, when did you start uh, uh, writing again? Just just generally, like you came back from the cock Were you were you writing from the time that you came back, or did you start to, to write plays later on?
1: Uh no. Well, with the with theater Smith Gilmore, we we collaborate. So mm-hmm. we're we're sort of writing and creating as an ensemble. Okay. So in a way that kept my my creativity and that that part of me going um I don't think i ever really stopped writing Mm -hmm. you just write in journals you write whenever you you feel like writing but there was no like specific goal until um you know Red Snow my previous play came along where um I had seen a documentary called In the Name of the Emperor about World War II uh and about the other half of the world that we rarely hear about in World War II, and I was propelled to say, "Why don't we know this history? Why mm-hmm. don't we know these stories?" And the stage is my public p- platform to speak, so I've got to write something. So that was in 1996. Mm.
0: And those stories that were that that we don't know are the stories of, of of people who are not European. It's the the story of uh stories of the the. The, the rape of Nanjing, the 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 Japanese invasion of China, and all of that, and those are stories that we don't hear because we live in a, a largely European country. And you you hadn't you just said you didn't know those stories until you saw that that documentary.
1: Mm-hmm. That was nineteen ninety six. Nineteen ninety
0: six. Yeah. Um, and so that inspired you to write uh, Red Snow.
1: Mm-hmm. So it was we'll, about uh. Oh, you gonna. Ask no, me I was gonna
0: me. ask you what what Red Snow was about, and so you.
1: So uh, it's uh, inspired by The Survivors of Danjing Mm -hmm. and it's about a granddaughter searching for her grandmother's silent story. So since the beginning of time, her grandfather had listened to Chinese opera but would never speak uh, or never sing. Mm -hmm. And she she knew that it was connected to her grandmother and she would have nightmares of this opera until one day she said, if nobody's going to speak in this household and it's so dysfunctional, I'm going to go to China and find my grandmother myself, Mm. she must be buried somewhere. Mm. And so she finds out about the Forgotten Holocaust, she meets a Japanese man, and they fall in love, and he helps her find, you know, Mm. her grandmother, but they don't, they finally find the story by returning home Mm. as a couple wanting to start a family, and the grandfather saying, forget Mm. it, get out of my house. Mm. And them finally finding peace and reconciliation to say that love has no boundaries. Mm. So, um, yeah. So it's the story of, of um, a forgotten, hmm. silent story.
0: And you, where? What was the? Well, where, where did you perform that?
1: That was at Theater Pass Mirai mm-hmm. uh, back in two thousand
0: and twelve. So you started writing this. You said nineteen ninety six. But
1: I didn't get a writing grant. Like I didn't really delve into it until two thousand and five mm-hmm. because I was busy act- right. acting. Yeah.
0: Um. And so it was performed at you said Theatre Pass And uh, was that part of a fringe festival or was no, that just no, something self-produced. that self produced? Yeah. Um, Under Red Snow Collective. Nice. And then and then what happened with it?
1: Then in the same year we got accepted into the Shanghai Contemporary Theatre Festival mm-hmm. and that was in November. So we took everybody there. Um, thank you for thanks for all the fundraising that everybody did and uh, you know the canada arts council Mm -hmm. so we took a team of 13 people there Mm -hmm. and it was just a great experience because actually that year 2012 was the 75th anniversary of the remembrance of nanjing oh so Mm -hmm. it was really important for me although it's crazy sometimes to be in festivals because they they pay very very Mm -hmm. little money um it was really important for me to have that story there. And it was so beautiful because when we had Q&A afterwards, there was this woman who said that mother in your play is my mother Mm. and she has the same nightmares and we're still waiting for an apology. Mm. And it's great that I can't believe that you're in Canada, you made the story and you all come here and you speak the story and perform the story and it opens up a way for us to begin to heal because we may never get an apology Mm -hmm. there may never be a closure we have to find one for ourselves
0: yeah um so that documentary was that you mentioned was like the the name in the name of the emperor was the name of the the documentary was the beginning of your inspiration for red snow Mm -hmm. what in what was the research for it like
1: well i was sitting in a uh dentist's office and I came across an article about uh, Alpha Education, and Alpha is the Association for Learning and Preserving World War II History in Asia, Mm -hmm. and I went aha, there's somebody who wants to talk about it because during that time when I was trying to talk to the community about it, nobody really wanted to talk about World War II because Mm -hmm. why do you want to, you know, dredge up the past, the pain, and the tragedy Right. so it was very difficult, there was not a lot of research material except for um, Irish Chang's Um, the Forgotten Holocaust, The Rape of Nanking. Mm -hmm. So I contacted Flora Chong, who's a main organizer in this amazing um, uh, organization. And she read my play, she loved it, they became one of my supporters. And every year, they've stopped now unfortunately Mm -hmm. because most of the survivors have passed away. Mm -hmm. They take educators from across Canada and Australia to China and Korea to meet the survivors. and mm. that includes the comfort women and all survivors of uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. Learning more about World War II history in Asia, visiting all the different places um, of, of, of importance, um, of massacres, of mm. medical uh, experiments um, by the military, uh, the Japanese military. And um, that was such a humbling and precious experience mm-hmm. to meet the survivors firsthand and talking with them and you know hearing their story like live mm-hmm. and uh, feeling their pain.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no no real uh, uh, comparison with hearing somebody tell their story. It's different than reading it um, in terms of, of of learning their stories. Um, was it hard to find the, the people who had been comfort women? Was it was that a difficult thing for you to 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 locate them?
1: Well, through Alpha, mm-hmm. so through Flora, um, through that tour with educators, they were they set up all these meetings mm. to listen to the testimonies okay. of comfort women of um, World War II survivors. Of, ones of chemical warfare, all the mm. whole, the whole range, and then in two, that was in two thousand and nine. In two thousand and eight, after speaking with Flora, she set up um, uh, an interviews with me by commi- co- connecting me with a professor in Nanjing. Okay. So I had a phone number. I got there. I called him. He set up these interviews, and it was just amazing. So mm. I met a woman. We call her Mama Sha, and. Um, the last time people went on that tour um she was basically going blind from from crying all the time um because the pain is still so deep within her and this is you know over 75 years and um she took me to uh, we went to her home i sat there she gave me her hot water bottle to keep me warm and I'm trying to push it back to her and my hands were frozen and she was just so welcoming and mm. so open to talk about mm. her story and I was just so grateful for that. Yeah. And then I also met a, a man named Mr. Chang and after interviewing him at a cafe, he said, you still have time because I really want to take you to a special place. Um, and he took us to Swallows Rock and Swallows Rock is a place where many massacres happened, but there nobody really knows about it. Mm. So the Japanese military would pack uh, truckloads of people and tell them that they were going to be free, and take them to Swallows Rock, which is a cliff, and then have them walk off the cliff into the icy waters of the Yangtze River. Mm. And um, so many ma- massacres happened there. And I was so grateful that he took me to sites that, like, are not on the, you know, the historic map that we may not mm-hmm. all know about. Um, and when I, when he escorted us to the bus with, to go back to this the main city, the the heart of the city, downtown, I just broke up mm. and I just, you know, cried for like half an hour on the bus, mm-hmm. like nonstop. It just t- totally uh, overwhelmed me and affected me from his. Um, st- from his testimony to him taking me to this place he said that his he watched his mother being bayoneted by a soldier and as she lay there dying she heard the babe their baby brother cry and asked him to find the baby brother and he found his baby brother crawling on ice so it was snow on top and ice on the back Bottom, so he would crawl forward and slide back. He brought the baby back to his mother, and the, the mom breastfed the baby till she passed away. So, from that moment on, I named my uh, playmate Snow because mm. I saw the whole place and I saw this baby yeah. and I saw the whole place and the chaos and this frozen moment where this baby is just crawling back and forth on the snow and I realized that the snow is probably not white Mm, Yeah. and um, so I named it Red Snow before it was called so many different things from Rage because I was so Mm, upset about it to Pain, to silence because nobody would talk to me and then finally it became Red Snow
0: Mm. it must have been very powerful to to present that both here but then to take it to China uh, and have it performed there absolutely um, now, when did you start working on Comfort, which is the play that you have coming up?
1: Right after I came back from China because I discovered um, funding in an envelope to write the next play, <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, such a blessing. Yeah. So I, they wanted to, m- me to write about... Uh, I, my proposal was to write about the grandparent story from mm-hmm. Red Snow. And eventually, while I was writing it, it kind of morphed into something else. Because what if she didn't die? What mm. if she lived and survived the war um, for for eight years? Mm. Um, because in, in China, World War II actually started in 37, not 38. Mm. So it became not a sequel, but an entirely different story. And it became about a comfort woman. So mm. that she was not only raped once, but, you know, becoming a comfort woman and... How she survived and mm. how she was um, separated from her her dear friend and love mm. and how what happens when they get back together and how they survive
0: mm. and so and that's what that's comfort is is that and and I mean the the term comfort woman is something that, that when when you first mentioned it I I don't think I understood what that meant that's um, the
1: the term that the the military the military used and it's so.
0: It's I basically the comfort
1: women hate that word Of course, yeah. they do. Um,
0: it's, it's basically somebody who is forced into
1: sexual sexual slavery. slavery. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and there and, and this is something that happened that we don't hear about. And I think
1: I think it's starting to be more you know mm-hmm. more prevalent in the, the media. There's movies. There's more books, more literature mm-hmm. now on it. Um, uh, there's the comfort wo- the Chinese comfort women which is the book I discovered in 2014 which veered me towards writing about the comfort women because I realized a lot of people, even people on my team, thought that the comfort women were only Korean women because mm. they are so vocal. They, some of them live in the same place in the house of sharing and they've you know painted and found a place of healing mm-hmm. and people come and visit them and, they, and share their testimonies. But in a lot of places in Asia, all the survivors are all segregated. They have no place of healing. They have nobody to talk to. Mm. And so I wanted to give voice to their stories. So it was great that this book came out. It was a book that took, I think, over 10 years to collect all these stories and to repeat, have the the women repeat their stories so that it was, you know, it was... Um, that their mem- you know, that the memory was clear, mm-hmm. and that the the facts and everything were accurate. So I decided to uh, give light to those stories. People mm. don't even know that there were Dutch women who were also comfort women mm. because Indonesia was a Dutch colony during mm. the World War Two. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's it's it sort of highlights the importance of telling the stories, even ones that were not that are not. We love to tell uh, heroic stories, and we love to tell stories that have uh, a happy ending, and we love a certain type of story. But with history, history often doesn't have a happy ending. But if we don't tell the stories, then they get forgotten, and it's like they never happened. It's really important to work that you're, that you're doing with this play. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I always... Even though it's tragic, I always bring a light of hope, Mm. and the hope also is not only in the characters, but hopefully they reflect us as, as, you know, humanity itself, the choices that we make.
0: When you were, I mean, you said that when you started writing it, you were thinking of of Comfort as as a sequel, but how long was it before you started veering away from it as a sequel?
1: After the first draft, mm. because my director, who was the choreographer, who uh, was the movement and music uh, director in Red Snow, I this is his directorial mm. debut, William Young, He was going. He was. He's directing it, and he said, "There's a lot of repetition in this story to Red Snow, mm. and it's because it's the grandparents' story, right. so it's very interconnected." And he said. Just wondering, just a thought, what if, you know, what if it's another, what if you had something else to say mm. about love and war and World War II, what else would you say? Mm. So then, you know, that that book passed, crossed my path, mm. and I thought, what if that grandmother or that woman, um, that young woman never died mm. after the first The first time she was violated. What happens Hmm. if she had to survive eight years of it?
0: Hmm. And that is that, I mean, and comfort is not just that, it's a a love story as well. Um,
1: So, two teenagers separated during the war.
0: Yeah. Um, What was it like taking that into workshops? And uh, uh, because you said you, you were saying in the last podcast that you did. Two workshops. Um, what was it? What was it like seeing this play um, come to life? Uh, was it different from when Red Snow came to life? Was there was was it a different experience seeing it or mm-hmm. hearing it?
1: Mm-hmm. With Red Snow, I took more of a traditional route where you have the text and you have an actors. Gathered uh, around a table, and there's talking, and then you might put and you'll start to put some scenes up on its feet, mm-hmm. and then you give the script to the music composer, and she or he goes away and writes the music for it. Um, in this one, I just did it in a totally different way, where I wrote the script, but I used movement and music, um, working with live musician, working with uh, the composer in the room with a dancer and an actor, and. Um, Taking the the bits of the script or words or themes Mm. and seeing what happens with the music what can be created what kind of music gets created what if if people are moving um how does that inform the music and vice versa so it was really great because even though the the musicians are not used to moving they're so attached to their instruments so there was some security issues Mm. because they're not used to that but they were really great and and um opened up and tried new ways of exploring music Mm. through movement and then going back to their instrument and then jamming, Mm. which was really great it was such a beautiful experience where we created a lot of music sometimes it would be a word that was dropped or a a movement that was created and then that would um, propel the musicians and the the music composer to create something and I remember one uh, piece that they created, I just saw um the moon which is a character like the moon in the sky Mm. is a character uh, witnessing the war and moon is also the bringer of the lovers together so I saw the moon witnessing and a whole monologue came Mm. uh, out of it of moon witnessing humanity the atrocities of war um, and a monologue came out of the music that I heard which would have probably not happened that monologue wouldn't have been born if it wasn't for the music that was created that was Ignited by the movement yeah. that was ignited by maybe one word hmm. from the story.
0: That's uh, it, it's amazing how much uh, music can affect a situation like that, like theater and like working like that, and live music especially when you can have somebody working with you to develop the, the music and 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 that, how that affects movement and things like that. Um, comfort has. Live music in performance?
1: Yeah, we have a uh, musician playing accordion and piano, and then Arhu, which is a, a Chinese violin mm-hmm. and a percussionist. Wow. Mm,
0: it's crazy. That's, that's, <laughs> wow. Because it sounds like like the kind of story that I, I'm trying to, the way that you've described it is so vivid um, that I'm trying to, to see, you know, if you had recorded music, it would work. But having the musicians there adds so much to any live performance that that um, I've got to think that it's it's got to be hugely affecting to have that, like to be in an audience and, and, and see that happen.
1: Well, they're not only playing the instrument; they're also using, uh using their voices mm-hmm. as well. So when we were workshopping it, we were working with a voice uh, coach mm-hmm. and in uh, and. and Musicians usually are not using their voice, mm-hmm. so it was very exciting and scary for them because they're used to being quiet. Yeah. So when they were asked to, you know, evoke the sounds of the soldiers of the of the landscape, it was just very, very um, uh, exciting, challenging mm. um, for them. So I'm excited because they're not only using their instruments, but they're using their bodies and their voices as the instruments as well.
0: How? I mean I can I, I can picture how that was at first how did they take to that after a while how um, was it difficult to get the musicians to embrace the movement and the sound away from their instruments
1: they all had varying degrees mm. of um, you know as, as actors we do crazy things mm-hmm. you know we will we'll, like crawl around and we don't care what our voice sounds like whether it's pretty or not right so I think that that was might have been a little bit jarring for them but then at the same time I think they felt it was like really freeing as a musician to go I can experiment with my voice Mm. cool I think I want to get into this Mm. so I think it just opened up new avenues for them personally as artists of Mm -hmm. expressing themselves which at first was scary but I think was um, invigorating and um, a a really growing experience for
0: them Mm. Um, so that was your first that was your your first workshop with the musicians and, 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 and actors and a dancer yeah um The second workshop, um, that was focused more on on text? Text Mm -hmm. Text and
1: actors, Mm -hmm. uh, some movement, Uh, so it was more on the text and the actors Mm -hmm. and then we brought the musicians in um, for a few hours to repeat some of the music for the presentation Mm because there was not enough funds to do the whole thing.
0: There never is. (laughs) Um, And so now, as we record this, you are a, a month away from opening uh-huh. this show uh-huh. and uh you start rehearsals for it <laughs> on, on monday on
1: halloween <laughs> so
0: we are recording this on on a uh, a wednesday so just a few days you're starting this you're starting to rehearse it how does it how does it feel are you excited nervous uh how like this this thing you've been working on for so long is now about to
1: I think because I'm also the self, self producer, so mm-hmm. it's it's also crazy there. Um, so I feel a mix of feelings. I feel really exhilarated uh, giving birth to a new story and mm-hmm. seeing it come to life with actors and music and everything. And at the same time, I'm also terrified because you know, will the story, you know, h- you know, how will it all work out, and how will you know? Uh, finding the rest of the funding all work mm-hmm. out. So it's, it's a mix of terror and um, exhilaration, mm-hmm.
0: I think. When you were doing your workshops, did you do a public presentation or an invited presentation?
1: Yeah. So in spring 2015, last year, we had a workshop presentation with public, Pay
0: mm-hmm. What You Can. Did that give you a sense of how, like, it's so hard with workshops to know because you don't know how it's going to change the next time or what's going to happen. Did you get any sense from it about how it was, like, how it was being received
1: people were very excited about mm-hmm. it. I uh, I know it also caused a controversy which is exciting because um, you want people to talk, you want people to get engaged yeah. in conversation. So, um, you know, I remember one was about, what about the soldier's point of view? And, you know, the soldier is very, the soldiers and the officer, mm. they have, you know, I wanted to portray them at their, you know, these are boys who were you know teenagers going to war and not mm-hmm. knowing what they're getting into necessarily yeah. and having to been trained so intensely um with you know probably a, a, an abusive uh, uh mm-hmm. training and every doing everything in the name of the emperor so that that w- you know i took that account but the story was the voices of the women it was about the women and i mm-hmm. and i if, ye, if somebody else wants to write a Play from the soldier's point of view or from the officer's point of view. I think there's a lot of hero stories. It's time for the the, the heroines to um, be honored.
0: Absolutely. Do do does every story have to be about the men? <laughs> and I say that as as a guy. Haven't we haven't we told enough stories? <laughs> you know, haven't, haven't haven't the guys dominated uh, uh, things enough? You were, that that controversy. Who was presenting that controversy from that from that workshop? Was it, one of the, did, audience, one of the members audience members
1: just asked um, mm. um, about the soldier's point mm. of view of, of how that can be brought out more te- intensely. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's always interesting during a workshop. Those Some of those Q&As can be a little bit fraught because there's always going to be somebody who their feedback is more about how they would have written it, <laughs> and, which is always like... Right, but I wrote this one, and if you want to, if you want that story, you should write that story. But you have to take that sort of graciously. Did you expect that, like, feedback that was going to be more along the lines of, like, I think you should have written it like this, or were, like, what were you expecting versus what you got as, as part of the workshop?
1: Um, I wasn't really expecting everything. I mean, mm. I'm very open to dialogue in you know, dialoguing, and I think bringing up questions. And, um, I may not always have the answers to, but bringing up questions just, you know, makes, makes people think, makes people feel, make people go, well, well, yeah, maybe I should write a story from their own point Mm -hmm. of view of how they want, you know, whatever they want to express or, um, but then it can also inform you as a writer about, um, characters and development or what parts of they didn't understand what parts excited them what parts didn't so it's you know you always take everything you know they're not the ones that are creating the story you're taking different aspects mm-hmm. but you may not always follow the recipe but it's always good to 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 listen right yes um, you yeah. don't necessarily have to follow their same recipes
0: no it, it's interesting because I always I've often found in workshops that that I usually know what I need to... If I'm doing a public presentation, I know what I need to know because the audience told me when we performed it or when we read it. Um, the Q&A, uh, I often feel like I have to direct a little so that it doesn't get too out of hand, but um, it's good that, that, that... I think you have a healthier view of audience feedback than I sometimes do. No, not no i think, I think that <laughs> I think that I sometimes feel a little bit like, oh, I have to do a Q&A, but I'm a little bit resistant about it but it sounds like it your i i i think i would aspire to to think more like you uh in terms of getting the feedback just to be able to to take it accept it and maybe there's a good idea and to at least look at it and, and hear it with this show starting rehearsal on on monday how has it changed so you've had two workshops yeah um, are there things that have changed a lot since you uh, started your first workshop, or is it? are there themes that are the same? Were there new themes that you discovered during the workshops?
1: Mm. I think uh, the storyline is clearer, mm-hmm. um, especially in Act 1 of how we get into Act 2 um, for the main characters. So I think more of the characters have been... Um, Volumized, mm-hmm. have have a um, a mel- more well-rounded development, um, and in the first one, the boy and the girl were together, so they mm-hmm. ran away together. Yes, and then they were hiding in a house that got take- got uh, converted into a comfort house, and they got separated into two rooms. Mm well, that's no longer happening because right. I just didn't know how I could help him survive eight years like
0: that. <laughs> no, that's, that, that is legit. <laughs> I just thought I tried yeah.
1: my best to keep him alive, but no, putting him in that the situation and then, of course, the officer would know that they were originally course, together. Yeah. And at the, in the beginning, it was about, oh, these two people care about each other and I'm going to do this and separate them and torture one and watch the other one suffer Right, a lot of times... Um, the military did do that, make people suffer, um, make families uh, watch their their daughters being raped. Mm-hmm. But how long could that go for? In mm-hmm. which you go, this this kid's no useless to me. Right, they might as well just kill. How me. do you
0: keep him alive for eight years? Is what, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so. So Ultimately, now he's, not ultimately, ultimately of, he's not part of the house. He's
1: not part of the house, mm. but he finds out okay. where she mm. is located.
0: And these are important things that you probably wouldn't have learned if you hadn't had workshops, mm-hmm. really. Because I know there's something invaluable about sitting down with actors and musicians and, and a director and, and like learning and talking about things and, and seeing how things feel and how they work. Workshops are so important. You were talking. We were talking about about the workshop process and how uh, things have changed from your initial script into the um, to the current version. I-, I can imagine how how much you must be looking forward to, uh, and also m- maybe being nervous about uh, that first that opening that first performance. Um, how do you how, like? You've got a great cast of people. You've got some some great musicians. Um, even before you you're starting rehearsal on Monday, what's your what's your feeling as you as you head into that?
1: I feel like I I wish I had more time as a a playwright mm. to just literally be divorced from the reality world so I can totally concentrate and take each single character and go through that whole journey again and really flesh out things mm-hmm. um, but because I'm trying to balance the producer with the uh, playwright it's really hard because the play- the producer is very demanding and has this mountain of paperwork mm-hmm. mountain of everything so I mean, I guess I'll have to do that when I'm inside that process and re- rehearsing mm-hmm. and I start changing things. So that's exciting. But I just feel like, you know, there's always not enough time to be fully prepared for yeah. the first reading, um, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I think that one of the hardest things that I've, I've had to do as a playwright is to embrace imperfection mm-hmm. and to just sort of accept that the play is what it is at the time that we start rehearsing it. And I I could keep messing with it, but at a certain point, actors have to learn lines and things have to happen, and so you have to learn how to just let go and let it be what it is, even though you kind of want to just make it perfect and keep working it. Um, but I think no work of art is ever perfect, and that's kind of what makes it art.
1: That reminds me of... Um this saying, one of my musicians is also a dear friend who plays the accordion and mm. the piano, Kathy Nassati, Um Because when I'm in that zone, she always reminds me of uh, Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. um, only with a crack does the light, light mm. shine through. So yeah, you can't have it perfect because the light won't shine through. Yeah, right. So I was trying to remember that, but uh, because when I was work when I was working on the the the, f- the previous draft, draft number seven, this summer and you know sometimes sometimes when you do mm-hmm. work on it too much it just becomes like oh my gosh because when the director saw the, that draft he goes what are you doing? Mm. why are scenes missing?
0: Yeah.
1: why did why is this at the beginning of the play now? and I, I go because I didn't like it and because I moved it there diana <laughs> we just workshop this twice yeah we've yeah. had discussions about this yeah. you can't suddenly so do, yeah. you, you can't re uh uh we workshop this mm-hmm. so you can't just whoosh, yeah. everything away and then just do what you know do whatever mm-hmm. so you have to have a um why are we taking away this yes yeah why did you move that back to where we discussed it for 10 minutes where it shouldn't be there <laughs> anymore so so
0: it's it's funny because I think that that as writers we always want to keep perfecting and and, and, <laughs> and and fixing but then I think there's a point at which you can actually perfect the life out of the piece mm-hmm. because you've because things that, like, it's meant art is imperfect, like I said. And so when you start making it too perfect, then it doesn't breathe and it doesn't live in the same way that it did when it was just not quite right. Yeah.
1: When you're trying to glue all the cracks together, yes. there's, no light, there's no light shining through. There's no
0: light shining through. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Comfort opens at...
1: November 25th mm-hmm. to December 10th.
0: To December 10th at the Aki Studio, Which is
1: the Native Earth Performing Arts inside... Daniel Spectrum, which is 585 Dundas Street East, mm. Parliament and Dundas, which is in the Regent Park area.
0: And it's produced by uh, Red, Red Snow, Snow Collective. Collective. Um, and you guys are on the web at?
1: www.redsnowcollective.ca
0: ca um And social media, you are?
1: Facebook Red Snow Collective and Diana Cho, TSO, as in Toronto Symphony Orchestra. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and what about what what about Twitter?
1: I are you on Twitter? on Twitter? Yeah, Red Snow Collective is on, on Twitter.
0: And you, Blanchot, are you? No, alone? I'm. So under you're red just snow. under Red Snow. Okay, yeah. that's, that's Red
1: Snow Collective. Red
0: Snow Collective. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. It's much. been fun. Yeah,
1: it's really great.